what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? God asked that question of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 in the context of a passage that at first glance seems to have very little practical application to us directly. It's between God and Elijah. But as we were reading through this in our daily Bible readings a number of weeks ago, at the same time I was preparing for a a weekend workshop, a Friday night and Saturday on parenting at a a church just up uh, south of Fort Worth. And one of the points that I made to those parents in that weekend was, uh, we don't have perfect parents, you didn't have perfect parents, I'm not a perfect parent, none of us are, but there is someone to whom we can look that is a perfect parent, and that's God himself. And so as you're reading through the Bible, Old and New Testament, look at how God deals with his children, and you get a pretty good idea of how we should be dealing with ours as well, at least in principle, at least in terms of these general ideas of how God dealt with his children. And so I was reading 1 Kings chapter 19 with those things in my mind. And while upon deeper study, there are lots of applications we could make from this text, I think this is an awesome example of God acting as a parent, an example of godly parenting in God's response to Elijah's discouragement. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you want to take one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, will you turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 with me, please? 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll begin reading in verse 1 here in just a moment. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. As you're turning there, let me take just a second and welcome all who are here. I see a number in the audience this morning who are visiting with us. Uh, We hope we've made you feel welcome. You're our honored guests. We want you to be treated that way. And we want you to know that we're here for God this morning, that that's our primary uh, obligation, our primary duty, and our primary goal is to to please God in the things that we do this morning. And and we hope that we'll encourage you along the way as we do those things, as you've encouraged us with your presence. Let's read together in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. After Elijah's greatest triumph, here's what happens next. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done in winning this great contest against the prophets of Baal, in putting the prophets of Baal to death, And all of the people crying out with one voice, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And yet, unfortunately, it seems like nothing has changed. Ahab told Jezebel about how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. But then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, He arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah was done. He was finished with all of this effort, with all of this fighting that he had been going through. Elijah had just come down from a a very difficult and emotional circumstance where he had done exactly what God had wanted him to do. 
And so God has patience with him in the time following that. But Elijah can't remain in this grumpy, woe-is-me, dramatic state forever. There is work to be done in the kingdom. And so God sends Elijah to do that work in just the right way, using just the right approach as a perfectly loving heavenly father would. And I would suggest this morning that we should handle our kids in the same way. Has your kid ever dramatically thrown a pity party like this or something similar? Have you experienced something like that? How does God respond? And what does it tell us about how we should respond? Well, notice seven parenting realities from God's response beginning in verses 5 through 8. Then as he, Elijah, lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lie down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. The first thing that I want us to see from God's response here is that God ensured that Elijah's physical needs were met. And and when it comes to our parenting, we should do the same thing. We should ensure that our children's physical needs are met. We know the reality. I said, has your children ever thrown a pity party like this? It is enough. We know the reality. We've probably thrown pity parties like that, right? I'm done. No more. It's enough. Whether that's with family or whether that's with work or whether that's with whatever other relationship out there. This is just too much. I've done enough. I'm done. And sometimes that's the way it is with our kids as well. The reality is it's harder for anyone, child or adult, to do what they need to do and to act right when they're tired and hungry and discouraged. And God wants to provide for our needs, and so we should take the time to care for ourselves and our children physically in regard to those needs. And don't misunderstand me, that doesn't excuse a bad attitude It doesn't absolve us of our responsibilities in regard to what God and others need us to do. But we are beings with spirit and body. We talked about that last week some. And taking care of the body can put a stop to or even help prevent our spirit, our inner man from acting out. Our bodies, as God has designed them, are amazing, aren't they? They're incredibly resilient, and and we can abuse these bodies in ways God does not intend. But not taking care of our bodies takes a toll over time. Rest and nourishment are required. And when our kids are having something going on until late, every single night of the week, and and homework on top of that besides, and, and they're running on Cokes and fast food, it is no wonder that bad behavior sometimes follows that. And sometimes the best thing we can do is feed them and send them to bed early. Uh, My wife, Stephanie, she's the queen of this. Uh, And not even in times like right now when it's getting dark at 5.30 in the afternoon. At any time of the year, this is the way she is. If the kids come home and they're acting up for no apparent reason, and I'm ready to just, you know, bring the hammer down, you know, ground them for life, she calls it. 
And she says, we're eating supper and going to bed. And that's exactly what we do. And she doesn't care. She doesn't care if it's 6 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock when everybody goes to bed. We're eating supper and we're going to bed. She'll feed them something good and healthy to eat and send them to bed. And what she's doing is she's saving the girls from themselves. And nine times out of ten, they're happy and behaving the next morning. If not, then that's the time that we can address it in harsher terms of discipline. When it comes to our kids, the bare minimum is to try and ensure that their physical needs are met. And generally, that's going to improve everything else in their life as well. But the second thing we see from these first few verses is that we don't need to dignify unreasonableness with engagement or argument. What is it that Elijah asks God for? Do you remember in the text? He says, kill me now. That's my words, right? He asks God to take his life. And God says, no, I'm not going to kill you, Elijah. Well, actually, God doesn't even say that because it shouldn't have to be said. And so too with our kids, sometimes we just need the, the clear reminder, I'm the parent and they're the child. You're the parent and they're the child. And when you tell them to do something, it's not a negotiation and you are not obligated to reason with them about every outlandish thing that they think or feel or say. You know, our kids are smart. Um, and our kids can be reasoned with about so many things. And as they grow older, we need to make sure that we have good reasons for the things that they do. But no matter their age, there are times where they can just be downright unreasonable. And it is not our job as parents to engage with that unreasonableness. We're the parent, they're the child. My dad was an educator for years and years and years. He was a coach and a teacher and then a principal and then finally a superintendent. And at the very end of his career, he was to that point, if you know my dad, my dad didn't care very much in terms of what other people thought anyway. He was just going to do what he thought was right, say what he thought needed to be said, and let the chips fall where they may. And if anything, as he grew closer to retirement, that got even more extreme. And he got called into, now remember, he's the superintendent of the school. He got called into a parent-teacher conference with the principal at that campus about a kindergarten boy. And, and he was called in for a couple of reasons. He was called in, first of all, because he knew the parents, had a relationship with the parents. And secondly, this one kindergarten boy had been to the principal's office. They had had multiple meetings with the parents and nothing seemed to be helping. And so the principal, who was close with my dad and, and my dad was a mentor to her in some ways, uh, she calls him in for this parent-teacher conference. And so... Uh, the conference begins, and the parents are there, and the teacher is there, the principal, and my dad. And the parents start saying, well, he, their son, he thinks this, and he says that, and he wants to do this when he's at school. And finally, my dad said, whoa, 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 I think I, think I can solve this. I think I can solve this right now. She's the teacher, and he's the child. And the child is going to do what the teacher says. This is a good teacher. She loves this child. She's the teacher. He's the child. And the child's going to do what the teacher says. And remember, he's close to retirement, so he takes a step further. And he says, and furthermore, you're the parent. And he's the child. And what's best for this child is for you to tell him what he needs to do and for the child to do that. But that's not what I'm, going to see. That's not what I'm seeing here. 
And as long as you continue to allow him to tell you what it is he's going to do, you're going to continue to have these problems. And so the father, again, who my dad knew and had known for many years, he looks at him and he says, are you saying that I'm a bad parent? And my dad looked back and said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, obviously the parents were upset with that. And they said, well, maybe we just need to take our child and go to a different school. And my dad said, well, that's fine if that's what you feel like is best for the child, what you need to do. But you're going to continue to have the same problems until something else changes in your relationship with this, with this child. And so they leave and, and the principal follows them out there and they're talking and they talk for a while. And, and finally the, the dad looks at the principal and says, he's right, isn't he? And she said, yes, yes he is. They didn't take the kid out of school, but here's the crazy thing. There was not another instance of discipline with that child that reached the principal the rest of the year. Because everybody figured out. You're the parent, he's the child. You're the teacher, he's the child. Who was that best for? Everybody. But it was best for the kid. He needed that discipline in his life. And he didn't need to be engaged with every whim that he had. And so too for us. So too for us as parents. When they ask for things that are unreasonably terrible for them, we don't have to give it to them or even argue with them about it. God didn't do that with Elijah. He didn't say, well, I'm not going to do that, Elijah, and here are all the reasons why. He just said nothing. He didn't engage Elijah in that unreasonableness, and neither should we. Well, let's keep reading and see what God actually did beyond just providing for the physical needs. Keep reading in verse 9 with me, if you would, please. And there at Horeb, the mountain of God, he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Is that true? Yeah, that had happened. And Elijah says what he feels. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then he, the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, before Yahweh. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cage, cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What do we learn from that? That's, that's really fascinating, isn't it? Well, I think again we can make application to our parenting. And the third thing I want us to see is that we need to consider the context of our children's behavior before determining the appropriate type and level of discipline that we use with them. Uh, earth, quake, wind, and fire. All of these are symbols of God's presence 
And especially they are symbols of his judgment throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I'll give you just one verse that shows this or illustrates this. In Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 6, in a chapter that's talking about the judgment of God, it says this, You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with the thunder and the, with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. These are three things that God uses throughout the Old Testament to bring about His discipline, to bring about His wrath, to bring about His punishment. And these same three things pass before Elijah, but God is not in those things. It reminds us perhaps of God's power and presence with all the people at Mount Sinai, and, and Herob is probably close to or the same place where the giving of the law at Mount Sinai took place. But it reminds us of God's power in the life of Elijah as well. The fire of the Lord consumed the, the burnt sacrifice, the water, the wood, the stones, even the dust in 1 Kings 18. In 2 Kings chapter 1, it is fire from heaven that comes down and consumes the, the men of the evil king Azariah. And God could use all of these harsher means for discipline when it was called for, but God was not in the fire here nor in the wind, nor in the earthquake. He speaks to Elijah with a delicate, whispering voice. God provided for Elijah's needs first. And then he rebuked him very gently in the context of everything Elijah had been through. Think about Elijah. For three and a half years... He had done everything that God wanted him to do, exactly what God expected and demanded of him. It was difficult, it was long, it was tedious, he was constantly on the run, he constantly had those who were seeking his life. We know that Ahab went to every other kingdom and made them sign a little agreement saying, Elijah is not hiding here. And for three and a half years he had done what God had wanted him to do, behaving exactly as God commanded and God knew that, and God saw that, and God took it into account when he comes to rebuke Elijah here. And so too with our kids. We need to consider that context as well. For example, when they've acted right all day at school, we should take that into account when they come home. When uh, gospel meetings are a wonderful and encouraging thing, but if you have small children, you know that's a long week as well. When we've had a week-long gospel meeting and they've come and they've taken notes and they've worshipped and they've paid attention, well, maybe we should, can show them some grace on Saturday when they're struggling to have a good attitude with their chores. God doesn't come down hard on Elijah here, but in the gentleness of a whisper, he does rebuke him. And asking the question twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he provides Elijah with clear instructions, a better perspective, and the help he needs to do what he needs to do next. And maybe that's the, the fourth thing that we should take as parents. We need to keep asking the most important question. It is our job as parents to see the big picture. So often as children, they don't see everything. It's our job as a parent to see and consider things beyond just what's right in front of them. And there are going to be things at work that maybe our kids don't see or understand. And all their thinking and all their arguing isn't going to change the reality of the situation. There are principles that they need to follow. 
And God is asking Elijah in this text to reassess his purpose and his position. What are you doing here, Elijah? Think about that. And God is going to keep asking that question until Elijah sees more clearly where he ought to be and what he ought to be doing. Uh, kids often want to point out, point to this reason or that exception why they aren't doing what they they should be doing, as Elijah does here. And it's not that God doesn't listen to what it is that Elijah says. He's going to answer Elijah's response in the end of this text. But Elijah needed to see that he wasn't in the right spot first. Gregory says in his commentary that this repetition of the question asked in 19.9 forces Elijah to consider carefully his position and his future destiny. And I think there is a real power in posing it as a question that must be answered. And I think there's a real power in using their name as well as parents. Um, I'll give you an example. In our home, a phrase that we've used since the kids were very little, I don't know who we stole it from, maybe we stole it from one of you. Uh, we ask them the question, when do we obey? If they don't obey in, in exactly the moment that we tell them to do something, we ask the question, when do we obey? And they have to answer back right away. And sometimes we tell them to do something and they don't do it or they start arguing about it. And so we ask, when do we obey? And sometimes they say, right away, blah, 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 blah. No, Maddie, when do we obey? Right away. Another question that we have to ask sometimes, and I think this is true of lots, of lots of kids, you ask them to do something or tell them to do something, and it's hard, it's difficult, they're not sure whether they're going to be able to do that or not, and they start complaining about that a little bit. Another question that we ask, um, Brookie, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm not going to ask you to do something that you're not able to do? Brookie, do you trust me? I think there's power in asking those questions. And expecting an answer in response to them because this is something that we ask in our family over and over and over again. And we can talk about all that other stuff, all the whys and why nots and buts, but this is the most important question and this is going to set up everything else. And so too with God's question. Elijah was here, but he needed to see that he ought to have been somewhere else. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. Actually, verse 14. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because of the children of Israel. They have forsaken the covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. And you shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maloah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. What is God doing here? Well, he's redirecting, right? And that's what we need to do. Redirect them to what they're supposed to be doing and I would add this to that. We don't just do it for them. I know it's a constant temptation for me as a parent to just say, never mind, let me do it, right? You have that temptation. 
uh, you tell them to do something, it's taking too long, they're not doing the job you want them to do, never mind, let me do it. Well, could God have appeared to these three men that he lists here and put them in their positions and told them that they were going to be doing these things? Of course. But it wouldn't have been helpful to Elijah for God to step in and just do it for him. And it's harder in the short term to direct our kids back to what they're supposed to be doing. But it is better for them and for us in the medium and long term. We are training them. But we don't send them out just to fail either. Along with that, we give them the help and assistance they need to accomplish their tasks. God gives Elijah clear instructions, a clear objective, and maybe most importantly, the support Elijah has been missing. The, the very next thing that we see in the text is that Elisha comes to follow after and be the prophet in training with Elijah. He gives him what it is that he needs in order to accomplish what he needs to do. Do you remember what it was like to be a kid? Some of you are kids. Uh, some of you look at me and say, well, he's a kid. Do you remember what it was like to be a child? Do you remember what it was like to not be able to do something even though you were trying as hard as you could to do it? Well, maybe we have that experience as adults too. Do you remember a time when an adult said to you, Get out of the way, let me do it. Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember the times, on the other hand, where they came to you and said, Here, let me help you do that. And the exhilaration of accomplishing it yourself when they helped you with it. You know, sometimes as parents we do just have to take over. Sometimes it's too important or we don't have time for them to learn it in that moment. But as much as possible, we should offer help and assistance with clear instructions and objectives, not just take it over for ourselves. We need to show them how. My grandfather on my mother's side was great about this. Uh, in our family, we jokingly called him, first behind his back and then to his face, we called him Chief Little Tip because whenever anybody was struggling with something, he'd come up to you and say, hey, let me give you a little tip on that. Let me give you a little tip. He'd tell you, and then he'd show you, and then he would stand there. This was the best part. He would stand there until you did it yourself. He would tell you, he would show you, and then he would stand there until you yourself were able to do it. And the next time, he wasn't looking over your shoulder. He just expected that you knew how to do it and that you would. Educators know the power of that kind of instruction, right? And as parents, we should know it too. That we should give them the help and assistance they need to accomplish their task. It's not that we're just doing it for them. We're equipping them to do it themselves. And that's true of physical things. That's true of spiritual things too, especially as they grow older. Yes, we say we're going to read our Bible and we get together as a family and we do that. And that's something that should continue as they grow older. But as they reach a certain age, they should also be doing these things on their own. And we should be striving to equip them for reading and study and prayer and worship. So when the time comes that they have to do those things on their own, they're ready and equipped to do those things. So that leaves us with just one last verse and one last parenting reality. Read verse 18 with me, please. God says, after giving Elijah these instructions, Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel 
All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Maybe the last thing that we should learn from this text is that we should remind our children that things are rarely as bad as they seem, and they are never alone. We have to be the ones to give them some perspective on life. And that begins with reminding them that that we're with them as their parents. That God is with them as their heavenly father. And hopefully they have other friends from godly homes who are with them too. Who are trying to do what is right. And as long as those three things are true. That we're with them and God's with them. And they have others who are seeking to do what is right. Well, things really can't be that bad. So we acknowledge their feelings. Those feelings are real, just as God does with Elijah. But we also provide them with greater perspective with which to deal with those feelings. And then that means that we should give them opportunities to be around others who are trying to do what's right, other godly kids from godly homes. And we know the opportunities to do that that are available to us. There are youth weekends, there are devos, there's the the senior get-together, one of those is tonight. There's the Monday night high school get-togethers, there's VBSs and gospel meetings. Never mind our weekly assemblies where we have the opportunity to come together on Sundays and Wednesdays, Wednesday nights. And if you take them other places for things like a gospel meeting, my suggestion is... I know we have to get back, I know we have to get home, and I'm not trying to contradict point number one, but maybe it's appropriate to let them stay and play and talk with others who are their age so that they can build those relationships. Um, camp uh, is an opportunity for that. You know why, you know why Steph and I volunteer at a, at a Bible camp every summer? And we spend hours and hours and hours preparing for that and and lots and lots and lots of money. You know why we do that? Lots of reasons why. uh, Lots of good reasons why. Uh, But one of the biggest reasons why is because for me, growing up in West Texas, small country congregation, I've talked to you about that, being the only one at church who was my age, that was a lifeline for me. It was a reminder that God had reserved for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. That there are other young people my age who are trying to do what's right, who are striving to live as God has called us to live. And it was a sacrifice for my folks uh, to take us, my sister and I, up to camp in Colorado every year. And you say, well, big sacrifice, a week in Colorado. Well, it was. It's the last thing that they were going to do before they had to go back to school as school was beginning again. It was a financial sacrifice that I didn't understand until I started sending my own kids to camp, right? But it was important to them as parents for my sister and I to know, no, you're not alone. I tell our kids here, but let me tell you again from the pulpit, maybe... You know, it's not more important or more powerful if I say it from up here instead of in a Bible class or whatever, but maybe this will help it sink in. You know how, how blessed you are to have other people your age who love the Lord and are trying to do what's right. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing, and it's something that you need to take advantage of while you have the opportunity. My parents wanted me to know that there was more to life than Afton, Texas, and the problems and issues at our little school, and that there were other Christian young people as serious about God as I was in other places 
even all over the country and the world. And that perspective, if we can help our kids to have it, is powerful. You might feel alone, but God has reserved 7,000 others who are trying to do what's right too. In fact, in our day and age, it is much more than that. And what a blessing that many of those who are trying to do what's right, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, are sitting right here in this auditorium with you. So those seven things that we see on the screen behind me, those work for our kids. But they work for all ages. Here's the thing. This is a great formula for dealing with all kinds of people, isn't it? Especially for those in positions of authority. This works for teachers and bosses and coaches and elders. These same concepts of how God dealt with a faithful servant who was having a bad day from a bad week, from a bad three and a half years. And with kindness and gentleness in the power of his whisper, God redirected, yes, he rebuked, but he also redirected Elijah into what it was he needed to be doing. And Elijah got up and did it. It worked for God with Elijah. And if the perfect parent did it this way, then maybe we should too. And of course, the crazy thing is, Even though God was a perfectly just and perfectly loving parent, his children didn't always respond to his discipline or to his mercy. And God has given every one of us a choice whether to submit to his headship, his parental guidance or not. And you have a choice this morning to accept God's direction for your life or to insist on your own way. And I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Elijah had that choice, and he chose wisely. And God rewarded him in the moment, but even more, he rewarded him and will reward him eternally for his faithful service. And so if you're not yet a Christian this morning, won't you choose God? Won't you choose to come in humble submission to put Christ on in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life, submitting yourself to the will of God above your own? And if you're already a Christian and you realize like the prodigal son, you've gone off to a far country away from God, and maybe even you've kept up appearances in that time, well, the time is never too late as long as we have breath in our bodies to come back to God. And God as a loving Father wants nothing more than to welcome us home with open arms. If you're subject to the gospel call this morning, come now while together we stand and while we sing. Your only son.